Welcome to Practice That, podcasts for the practice manager. Today's Tuesday, the 2nd of November, 2021. I'm Ann Davis, faculty manager with the RACGP, and with me once again is George Satiris. He's talking today about the importance of reading the awards. I'm really looking forward to this, George, because reading awards isn't the most favourite thing on my agenda. George is the Director of Health Industry Employment Services with many years of working with medical practices and really an absolute guru about all things HR and IR. George, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, Anne. And at least one of us loves the awards. And just a reminder, George is providing general information and it's important to seek individual advice. So, George, as you've said, you love awards and you're passionate about the health industry awards in general. And I guess you've been working with them for really probably over a decade now. For listeners who may be familiar or new to working with the Health Professionals and Support Service Award and the Nurses Award, What's the first step we should take when reading the awards? Look, I, I wish it was that easy, but if it was, I, I probably wouldn't be, you know, doing what I'm doing. <laughs> yes, that's true. So, but let's just all start off by acknowledging and understanding that fair work has made things, I suppose, to a degree uh, complex and difficult. There are so many moving elements to understanding the awards and achieving compliance. Hence the reason why I love working so closely with practices to assess, well, are we doing the right thing? Is there a risk of underpayment? But, you know, I suppose some of the first tips, and we apply these basic concepts and principles to every single practice we work with. Because when I come into a practice, we need to assess the compliance and we need to know if we're doing the right thing as per the awards. And what we typically start off with is actually by understanding are these awards, is the coverage of the awards appropriate to the clinic? And we're seeing a lot of fancy accounting structures, I think is probably a good way where there's four or five different entities, there's service entities, you know, there's entities that help the medical practices. So understanding your structure, if you're just a a straight, you know, general practice, and that's how everything is, is working, and everyone's engaged by that medical practice, it makes life very easy. However, if there are multiple entities potentially providing a service to the general practice, that may be exempt from the health professionals and support services awards. So looking at your structure is the first point, but it's always best to get professional advice. So the first thing is, is that the health professionals and support services award and the nurses award will cover general practices. So if you're applying any other award, please be mindful that it may be incorrect. So common errors we see is the clerks, the general clerks award, which ultimately will not cover your admin staff because there is coverage under the HPSS award. Another common error we see is practices who employ doctors using the medical practitioners award. This does not apply to private practices. Obviously, all of our registrars are covered by the NTCER and all of our employed doctors are generally award-free and that a medical practitioner's award only applies to private hospital-based or hospital-based doctors. So make sure you don't get confused on those provisions, So, which makes it nice and easy. So we're dealing with the HPSS award, the nurses award, 
And if you do have beauty therapy staff, if you've got skin attached to your practice, there might be the hair and beauty award. So if you're using any other awards outside of those three, be mindful that it may be incorrectly classifying staff of your practice. So that's just point number one. So following on, once we've actually assessed that we're using the right awards and we're actually applying the correct coverage, there's a few simple things we need to assess. And the first point is, so if you're a new practice or you're new to the awards, or if you're an existing practice, we have to assess, are we wanting to achieve award compliance or do we want to contract out of particular award terms to have some form of a salary or an individual arrangement? And this can often be very difficult because when we enter into an employment arrangement with staff, before you even consider that, you should understand the basis of the award terms to know, do we want to pay a particular rate with all your overtime, penalty rates, loadings and provisions, or do we potentially want to pay slightly above the award and contract out of, you know, a bit of overtime or a bit of annual leave loading, something along those lines. But this is yet again where, you know, even coming back to practice manager positions, you know, we do see some paid as per the award terms and we're seeing all the leave loading, allowances, overtime and provisions. However, most of the times a practice manager doesn't work a very structured working arrangement. So this is where we will see salaried arrangements. But what happens in practice versus what you have in writing and what the award says is something very different. And I will talk about that hopefully a little bit later. So understand if you want to be award compliant or have a salary arrangement. So that's my second tip. So first point is award coverage. Second point is understand how you want to pay your staff. And then the third point, when you actually pick up the award. So now we're at the point where we can we can actually physically pick up the award and start reading it. We have three main tips or, or points that we look at when a practice is trying to establish. So if you don't know where to even start with the awards, write these points down. So the first point is understanding the status of employment. So that's looking at, do we need to engage staff on a full-time basis, part-time basis or casual basis? So there's been a lot of confusion over the last 12 months around part-time and casual and what a true casual employee is. And there's been significant legislation changes and maybe that can be another podcast. But the first thing you need to establish is, do we have a full-timer working 38 hours a week, week in, week out, who can obviously be rostered to work those hours? Do we need a part-time staff member who has a fixed amount of hours each week working the same days and same start and finish times per shift. So a part-timer needs to be consistent and needs to work less than 38 hours a week. Or do we have our lovely casuals that work irregular hours? They work as per the operational requirements. There are minimum shift lengths for casuals. So for our HPSS award, it's three hours minimum shift length. And if you employ cleaners, it's a minimum of shift length of two hours for cleaners. And for your casual nurses, it's a minimum shift length of two hours. So the point here, I just want little triggers to understand. If you have someone working 38, they're most likely full-time. If they're working the same shifts day in, day out with the same pattern of work, they're going to be part-timers. And obviously, if they're working irregular or filling in or doing late closes when the doctors are running late or whatever it might be, they're most likely casual. So as a first point, establish your status of employment for your staff. 
So I was just thinking while you've been talking about these things to understand, it really does mean that the practice manager really needs to understand the business of the practice, what they're doing for sustainability, what they're doing for, for practice growth. So this is really quite valuable to have those two happening in parallel. A hundred percent. And understanding some of these compliance points, especially uh, with practices evolving to have COVID clinics, working late, staff staying back, opening on weekends, with this basic foundation, it helps you manage overtime or unnecessary overtime. It helps you be more efficient. It helps you have better cover. So that's why we start off with the first point of the three of understanding your status. So once you know if they're full-time, part-time casual and try have a nice mix of those statuses if possible, the next point is to look at your classification definitions. So if you've probably heard of what a classification definition is, every single award will have a definition and particular classifications as to where your staff should be classified at. So for the support service employees, which we'll cover from our junior receptionists all the way up to practice managers. So this is where you'll find your receptionists, senior receptionists, PMs, cleaners, typists, will be classified as support service employees. And to make it very clear, practice managers are classified under the Health Professionals and Support Services Award. Around that level eight or nine classification, there will be definitions to suit the functions and roles of a practice manager. So the first point is to actually physically pick up the award. It's about 50, 60 odd pages of good reading and the classification definitions have half to full page descriptions of each levels. So, and again, I'm not going to break down the levels, but you have to establish it. So to give some rough indication, you'll find your receptionist around level threes, competent staff around level five in the reception or secretarial side of things, and obviously senior staff that have responsibility and accountability of lower level staff will be from level seven to nine. So understand what those definitions are and seek support if you are unsure. And with regards to your nurses award, yet again, there's a very similar definition and breakdown where you'll have your enrolled nurses and registered nurses and every other category of nurse classified under the award. But why is it so important to understand your status and then to look at the classification levels? Because this gives us the benchmark to understand what the minimum rate of pay is for our staff. And once we've done this correct, everything else flows a lot smoother. We then know where to pinpoint, you know, all of our penalty rates and loadings. So the minimum rates of pay then get matched to each level and each potential pay point, which represents years of experience. So if you can establish those three concepts of understanding your status, looking at your minimum or your classification levels and understanding your minimum rate of pay, and if you review that at least annually or when there's a change in a, in a role, you will be, I suppose, one step ahead of, of achieving compliance. I like how you've had that sequencing status classifications then rates, minimum rates. It gives a nice structure for my brain to walk through that. So you have suggested that we read the awards, but they can be quite complex and difficult to read at times. What are the common areas of non-compliance? What do you see in the practices that you're working with? Yeah, and and, and as you probably can tell, I'm you know the the awards are 
I'm very passionate about them and just educating practices. So we love to go into practices and actually assess compliance. And this is breaking down the awards from top to toe. And this is looking at compliance with penalty rates, loadings, allowances, the three points I've, I've just mentioned. And some of our most common errors and issues we see are staff working outside of the span of the award and not receiving overtime. So for example, the Health Professionals and Support Services Award is 7.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. So what's happened with COVID clinics? We've had you know staff starting at 6 a.m. and they haven't been paying for time and a half overtime from 6 a.m. to 7.30. And again, with our nursing staff, this span under the Nurses Award is 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And traditionally, all of our nurses have worked between that span, but yet again, with COVID clinics starting, we've seen nurses work back till 9 p.m., and not get paid the overtime from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. So this is where we need to stay on top and understand some of these points. And so overtime is just one very clear point. The other one is missed allowances. And this is very, very common. So if staff are wearing a mandatory uniform and their practice has supplied the uniform, so there's no out-of-pocket expense for the staff member, there is a laundry allowance of 32 cents a shift or $1.49 per week, whichever is the lesser amount for the laundry allowance. So understanding the allowances under the award, and there's about seven other allowances, you know, there's a travel allowance of 80 cents a kilometre. If staff use their vehicle for work-related purposes, that's not to and from their shift. That's if they have to go to another site or if they have to go to a bank run or pick up something, there is a, a reimbursement of 80 cents per kilometre. So understanding what's actually applicable and payable under the allowances and entitlement terms of the award is, is crucial. And I, I won't forget about our nurses. One of the big things for the nurses is that in the nurses award, nurses actually receive an additional week's leave in comparison to our HPSS. So under the nurses award, it states that a full-time staff member will receive an additional week's leave on top of the terms of the national employment standards. So that totals five weeks, obviously pro rata for part-time. So we often see that fifth week missed out because a lot of staff will just default or practices will default to the fourth week. So those five or six things are very common areas and that's only scratching the surface. So they're things that managers could just, you know, mentally tick off as far as their compliance that they're actually doing. So George... I mean, we've talked about awards telling us about how to pay stuff, but there are other things that awards do. What other factors should practices consider when trying to be award compliant? That's actually a very good question, Anne, because awards have a very crucial part. My sort of passion for the awards comes back to then understanding when we're drafting contracts for our practices, or when we're also looking at some of the payroll factors, you need to understand the award. So, and, and, and this is where we, we get so many people call up and say, George, can you just send us a contract? And then my head starts to explode a little bit. And I'm like, well, oh, that's when I come back with 50 other questions to say, well, are you award compliant? Are you paying allowances? Are you, what do you do with overtime? You know, are you paying leave loading? So, I suppose having the essence and understanding our award compliance allows us to then draft accurate contracts because the employment terms and the relationship that we're engaged to should be reflected accurately 
in the contract. So this is why I will never just hand out a, a contract to someone. And I think it's such an important factor to remember that if you're filling out a template or a contract or you have one that you've had for a very long time, does it accurately reflect your compliance with the awards? But they're the two factors. So you've got the awards and the contracts. But then we have the third piece of the puzzle, which is payroll. And if it's outsourced, if it's in-house, if you've got someone supporting you with it, whatever it might be, if you have a triangle and you've got your award compliance contracts and payroll in, in that sort of pyramid style, you have to ensure that each one of the elements is talking to one another. And I can almost guarantee you that if someone's doing payroll and they have no understanding of what's in either the award or the contract, or if your contract's drafted without the understanding of what happens in payroll or, or the awards, I'll guarantee you there'll be some form of discrepancy in pay run and, and what's actually occurring. And even if their manager has changed the conditions of engagement, they may have put a nice you know, fresh contract together and had that signed. But unless it's communicated with the payroll, then there might be some, well, as you say, it might not work. Yeah. And, and this makes you wonder then, whoever's processing payroll should, and, and is accountable for payroll should understand the award terms and or should understand and have a copy of each staff member's contracts. And without those two pieces of that triangle I mentioned, it, it, this is where errors occur. And we're talking about errors that may occur over a period or a span of, you know, five to 10 years. So you miss an allowance, you miss a penalty rate, you don't read the contract correctly. This is where we see liability and, and issues occurring in the hundreds of thousands. We've had them before as well. So understanding the importance of getting it right and those basic foundations will assist minimise the risks of underpayments and potential back pay claims. Thank you. So before we finish up, any final tips? Any final tips? Yet again, as you can see, it's such a complex topic. Yes. I do this over, you know, three to four hours and, and I love it and I, I could go for 10 hours if you wanted me to. But some of my final tips would be is to start from the scratch, understand what you're trying to achieve. Go through those three tips I mentioned about your statuses, your classifications, your minimum rates, and take the time to read the award. If you are too busy, you don't have the understanding, or it's just too complex, bearing in mind it's taken me about 12 to 13 years to establish the knowledge I do and, and have on the awards. Um, seek support. Look at your network, understand, don't rely on it because this is just one very important factor of the role a practice manager has. So understanding the accountability of your compliance with the awards is crucial. So my point is take the time to understand the awards, seek support, and there's always ways to make improvement and acknowledge if you've done something wrong because it's a lot easier to fix it now and to make amendments than to avoid the issue and come back and have to deal with it in five or 10 years' time. Absolutely. George, thank you so much. It hasn't been as scary as I thought it was going to be. Well, and let me know next time and I can, I can add a few more scary points in it. So thank you for having me, of course, and, and I hope our listeners have taken away some valuable points there too. 
Thank you. And I look forward to the future recordings in this series. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Till next time, goodbye and be kind to each other.